Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we will be discussing Book 7 of Homer's Iliad. We will focus on two things. First, uh, we will argue that Nestor comes to sight not as a stodgy, old, blustering traditionalist uh, who takes too long to tell a story, but rather as a man of great prudence, who, especially at the end of Book 7, is able to make the necessary thing seem like the pious thing. And in addition to that, we will spend a great deal of time on Hector and Ajax's duel against one another and try to figure out uh, what's important, uh, what, what it tells us. So let's start with some brief summary remarks on Book 7. It ends with a truce between the Greeks and the Trojans, and it concludes the day of fighting that has been raging since Book 2. So Books 2 through 7 constitute one day of the war. Book two begins with Hector, or sorry, book seven begins with Hector and Paris rejoining the fighting as they return from Troy. Apollo and Athena engineer a plan to end the day in the form of a duel. It's not quite right, or it's not quite time uh, for the Trojan War to come to some kind of concluding end or something like that. It has to, they have to have a pause right now. And so Hector issues a challenge to fight one of the Achaeans in single combat. Nestor rallies the Achaeans. Finally, Ajax more than meets Hector's challenge. Um, we see the plot of the Iliad we talked about last time move forward. As we said then, it has been argued that the war can be broken up into three phases. The first phase being fighting for Helen or for her recovery. The second phase is the characters seem to be more oriented towards fighting for undying fame. And finally, in the third phase of the book, the characters, or at least Achilles, who becomes the main character in that moment, fights for revenge. The borders, sorry, the borders between these phases is porous. That is to say, the different motives, all three of them, come up throughout the book. But nevertheless, one tends to be emphasized over the others and they present a helpful way to organize the book in our mind. When Hector and Ajax fight, they're not fighting about the return of Helen, as the fight, the earlier fight between Paris and Menelaus was ostensibly for. But rather, they fight uh, explicitly for undying fame, and the promise of a full funeral for the potential loser. These are the goods that entice them, not the ending of the war and not the recovery of Helen. With that overview in mind, let's look more closely at the text. When Hector issues his challenge to the Achaeans, they initially find themselves in a hushed silence. Menelaus is the first to get up and don his war gear, but the soft spearman is pulled back. It is clear to everyone that he isn't a real match for Hector, and so he is called back by Agamemnon. Menelaus's aides breathe a sigh of relief it doesn't take much time for Menelaus to pull his, you know, to want to pull his armor off. He seems to also have the sense that he's not quite a match for Hector. Um, so this leads Nestor to launch into a speech designed to stir up Achaean volunteers. Classicist Malcolm Wilcock offers a helpful insight into the structure of the speech. Um, he he calls it a ring speech, and I think he's certainly not the first scholar to do so. But a ring speech is usually organized into seven parts. And if you're thinking about, you know, scanning a poem or sort of elucidating its structure, you'd say it has a structure like this. 
A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And what I mean by that is that the first three parts of the speech, or they're sort of like the first three parts are stated, and then a fourth central new thing is stated. But then on the other end, after the central part, the other three parts are stated in reverse order. So here, if that's confusing, let me give you, we'll just state, here, here's how Malcolm Wilcock organizes Nestor's speech. So the first part of the speech we could call A. All of you are afraid of Hector. That's what Nestor says. The second part of the speech is B. I wish I were young again. The third part of the speech, Nestor refers, and this would be part C, Nestor refers to a man named uh, Ur-Euthalian. He's the champion of Nestor's opponents um, at some time in the past, and he owned the armor of a man named Erethus. We turn to the central part of the speech, a story within a story, which we could call part D. Nestor tells us how Erethus died, and therefore how Eruthalian gained his armor. Now, we start to head back out to where we were before, whereas part three was about Eurythalian and him having this armor. Now, part five of the speech, Eurythalian now had the armor of uh, Erethus, and he challenged Nestor's people to fight, and Nestor accepted, and he killed Eruthalian. In part six, just as he did in part two, uh, Nestor says, I wish I was young again. And just as the speech began saying, uh, all of you are afraid of Hector, in part seven, Nestor says, uh, all of you are afraid of Hector. So it's a seven-part speech, and it contains a story, and there's a story within that story. Now, on the face of it, the speech presents a parallel situation from the past, in which Nestor accepted a challenge similar to the one that Hector offers here. By pointing to his own courage and success in the past, Nestor shames the Achaeans into trying to live up to his example since he's too old to take up the challenge now. The most striking part of Nestor's speech is his story within the story, in which an Arcadian named Lycurgus kills Erethus, who was famous for yielding a giant iron club. In open battle, Erethus is able to break battalions open. Um, yeah, just swinging it around uh, battalions are highly uninterested in encountering a man who's giant, who swings a giant iron club. Now, Lycurgus, the man who killed Erethus, did not fight Erethus in the open. Rather, it's said that he fought him on a, quote, footpath so cramped uh, like that Erethus's iron club was useless, end quote. Lycurgus, Nestor says, quote, cut him down by stealth, not through force at all, end quote. And so Lycurgus, through cunning or cleverness, is able to defeat a stronger man. Lycurgus lives to be old, and then he passes on his armor to his henchmen, uh, as it says in the translation, and also in Lattimore's translation, uh, but a different way to translate it would be something like a squire. Uh, but he transmits his armor to Eurothalian, and this man becomes the champion of the Arcadians, who sought a one-on-one -on -one challenge with Nestor's army. So, Eurythalian is described similarly to Erethus. Erethus was said to be massive, a monster, 
a Hulk. Eruthalian is described as the biggest, strongest man I, that is Nestor, ever killed. The huge, lumbering sprawl of him stretching far and wide. Uh, end quote. Now, of course, Eruthalian would have to be of similar size to Erethus in order to fit into the armor. They both have to be big guys. Uh, and so, um, and so we might ask, how does Nestor kill Eruthalion? Well, we don't know, because he doesn't say. He only says that Athena granted him glory. Now, if he would take the time to mention precisely how the monstrous Erethus was killed by Lycurgus, why wouldn't he have mentioned how he defeated the lumbering Eruthalion? Did Nestor, like Lycurgus, make use of cunning in order to win? We can't say for sure. We can only say that Nestor presented a stealthy kill within a story, uh, like with a story within a story, and then he chose to omit any mention of how he acquired his own victory. Um, we don't know. So again, this could indicate that Nestor used less than noble means in order to overcome another lumbering foe in light of his knowledge of a previous monstrous or lumbering foe uh, being killed through stealth or through cunning or something along those lines. But we don't know. We don't know. Um, we can say this. He presented a stealthy kill within a story of a story, and then he omitted any mention of exactly how he acquired his own victory. Um, we could say that the core purpose of Nestor's speech is, of course, to inspire an Achaean fighter to step forward to go against Hector. But how does the stealthy Lycurgus kill contribute to that purpose? Either it is a bit of bluster from an old man, or it is some kind of mist-covered window into the mind or the deeds of Nestor. Perhaps this doesn't convince you that Nestor is hiding something. That's fine. We'll consider what I take to be a much stronger and clearer example at the end of the lecture when we discuss the fortifications, and we'll see another small example of Nestor's prudence in just a moment. Now, Nestor's speech is successful in that it rouses nine Achaeans to answer the challenge. Agamemnon stands up first of all, and Odysseus stands up last. Nestor collects lots from the volunteers. Each of them scrawl a symbol onto a rock uh, and place it into something, some sort of container. Murmurs of prayers are heard from the army as they voice their desire to see either Ajax or Diomedes' names emerge. We don't always get a view into the mind of the army as a whole or their general moral opinions or opinions about things. And so this is a striking moment. Most of the Achaeans consider Ajax and Diomedes to be the best of them, at least apart from Achilles. Um, you know, for instance, not Agamemnon or Odysseus. No one is praying for those two to be selected. As it turns out, Ajax is selected and it emerges that even over Diomedes, he was favored by the men. Um, in an overwhelming way. Now, is it a coincidence that Ajax emerged as the victor in light of these prayers, or perhaps as divine providence? That's one possibility. So it's either a coincidence that Ajax emerged, it was chance that his rock came out. It could be that the men's prayers were answered by the gods, although we don't really hear anything about the gods intervening. Or here's one more possibility. 
But Nestor, who is the man uh, making that speech from earlier, who's in charge of drawing the lots, could it be that Nestor drew the lots and that he made sure that nothing was left to chance? Again, we don't know. This could all be kind of understated. This could be a little bit of an overread into a character. Although, um, as we had discussed in book four, the way that Nestor ordered his troops compared to how Ajax ordered his troops was there was a striking difference. As you recall earlier, Nestor ordered all of his troops with a view to their potential weakness or lack of virtue. He wanted to make sure that even the worst among his men would be most advantageously situated. He was very careful about where each man was placed, and he relied more on his prudential ordering of the men rather than on their virtue. He didn't really count on the majority of them to be courageous, whereas Ajax in that moment had relied upon his men to be courageous. So that early example is something that primed me, I guess at least, to start to wonder, is Nestor much more tactical, much more prudent, that he seems traditional, but ultimately he has more of an eye on what's necessary, on what needs to be done, uh, rather than on what most people think ought to happen, or something along those lines. However this may be, let's turn to Homer's words about the fight right before it begins. They're beautiful and highly interesting. Quote, Ajax harnessed himself in burnished, gleaming bronze, and once had strapped his legs and chest in armor. Out he marched like the giant god of battle, wading into the wars of men. When Zeus drives them hard to clash and soldier on with heart-devouring hate. So giant Ajax marched, that bulwark of the Achaeans. A grim smile curling below his dark shaggy brows. Under his legs power, taking immense strides, shaking his spear high, its long shadow trailing. The men of Argos exulted at the sight of him there. But terrible tremor shook each Trojan fighter's knees. Hector himself, his heart pounding against his ribs. But how could he shrink before the enemy, slip back into a crowd of cohorts now? He was the challenger, he with his lust for battle. End quote. Ajax is referred to as a giant a few times. Is he meant to resemble the monstrous Erethus in some way? At any rate, we see that the Greeks are delighted at the sight of their champion. He inspires fear in the ranks of the Trojans, and indeed, even or especially within Hector. Hector, even though the gods had prompted him to make this challenge, appears now to doubt their support. The two men exchange fierce words. Ajax ends his, uh, to speak vulgarly, his trash-talking speech, with a noble sentiment, he will let Hector take the first spear throw. This is to incur great danger upon himself. Hector's throw could kill him. He might not even have a chance to fight himself. But nevertheless, he says that Hector may take the first throw. Hector ends his trash-talking fight with his own noble sentiment. He says that he will throw his spear only in the open rather than on the sly. He's not going to pretend to wait for a moment and then suddenly throw or something along those lines. He wants to make sure that he fights in an upright way. Now, as we said a moment ago, if or to the extent that Ajax represents one of the giant hulking men from Nestor's stories, 
Hector might find himself in a difficult place if he refuses to resort to Kyle, sorry, to guile or cunning. Now, the fight between Ajax and Hector is broken up into three phases. First, there is spear throwing. Hector throws his spear and it hits Ajax's shield square in the center, but it is stopped by the last layer of the shield. So Ajax isn't hurt at all. Conversely, Ajax throws his spear and it breaks through Hector's shield and even pierces his breastplate. Hector moves at the last moment in a way that allows him to dodge Black Death. In this first phase, we can say Ajax has the upper hand. In the second phase, they pull their opponent's spears out of their respective shields and charge against one another. Hector stabs Ajax's shield, but the point of the spear bends back. Conversely, Ajax stabs through Hector's shield and grazes his bare neck, drawing blood. In this phase, Ajax retains and increases his advantage. The third phase entails throwing rocks. Hector picks up a large rock and throws it at Ajax, and his shield rings loudly. However, Ajax is largely unaffected, and he immediately grabs a much larger rock and throws it at Hector, which topples him and plants him on his back. Ajax increasingly looks like he has the better of Hector. Apollo picks Hector up, and then the fight is broken up by humans and gods before it can turn to what would have been a fourth and probably final phase of sword fighting, in which Ajax might have overcome Hector once and for all. One gets the sense that we see a battle between a heavyweight MMA fighter or boxer who's going up against someone from a smaller, almost featherweight class or something like that. Somebody who's skilled at fighting in that featherweight class, but who just simply, by virtue of their nature, is unable to compete in a big way with a larger man. This is significant, insofar as Hector is supposed to be the best of the Trojans. But it would appear to be the case that the best of the Trojans isn't really a match for the second best of the Achaeans. As we will, as we will learn later, the Achaeans have taken 23 different citadels or places of interest from the Trojans. It may be that without the support of the gods, without full-throated and continual support, they really are much weaker than the Achaeans. And that if Achilles hadn't prayed to his mother Thetis earlier in the book um, to tell Zeus to honor Achilles by allowing the Trojans to slaughter the Achaeans all the way back to the ships, um, in other words, without Zeus's intervention that, Ach that Achilles had prayed for, the Achaeans might very well have overcome the Trojans without Achilles' help. And that would seem to undermine Achilles' claim on his own behalf that he is a necessary condition of the Achaeans winning. Um, it turns out that while they're obviously much better with him on the field, without Achilles asking the gods to stymie the Achaeans, they might very well have been strong enough without him, even if he is the best among them. So, the Achaeans and the Trojans both saw exactly what we did when Hector and Ajax fight. And so the Trojans are really happy to see that Hector's not dead, <laughs> that he's allowed to live afterwards, whereas the Achaeans are literally said to celebrate Ajax's victory. Neither side saw the duel as a draw. 
they all saw that Ajax got the better of Hector. Now, we turn once again to Nestor, and I'm interested if you see the next example of mm, as more proof of Nestor's shrewdness. After the duel, he advises Agamemnon to ask the Trojans for a temporary truce so that both sides can gather the dead. Now, conversely, in the Trojan camp, they both they also hope for a truce to come. So it's not much of a disagreement between the two sides. They would both like such a truce. Now, such a truce to gather up the dead requires enormous trust by both sides. For if both armies are out on the field to gather the dead at the same time, they have to trust that the other side is willing to subordinate their desire for victory to their desire uh, to subordinate that to their desire to respect the sacred duty to the dead is more important. In this way, Nestor comes to sight as a blameless traditionalist who reminds younger generations of what they owe to the dead. Now, that there are more important, in other words, that there are more important things than victory. At the same time, though, at the end of Nestor's speech, he proposes the, that the Achaeans build fortifications around their camp during the truce. They might not have been able to if it wasn't during a truce. The Trojans might have attacked the builders, uh, so on and so forth. So that is to say, Nestor is, he's not so cunning in a low way that he proposes attacking the Trojans while they gathered their dead. The Achaeans probably would have rejected this idea anyway. It would have been too low for them, too ignoble. And Nestor, knowing who he's talking to, doesn't propose anything like that at all. But we can say this, he is shrewd enough that he wants the Achaeans to attend to tactical necessities just as much as he wants them to attend to their sacred duties to the dead. Now, of course, as we know from later in the book, the wall does little to stop the Trojans on their day of glory when they strive to burn the Achaean ships. But nevertheless, Nestor has his eye on adapting the Achaean strategies to their new circumstances. Achilles is off of the field, and so the Trojans are emboldened to go beyond their walls. It is with a view to that change that Nestor advises that the fortifications be built. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure to discuss the Iliad with you. Uh, until next time, Brian uh, Cerberus Wilson out.